Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is a frequent participant on our program, and that would be Bob Phillips, who uh, serves as the long-term executive director of Common Calls North Carolina. He's been in that position since 2001, and uh, that organization is a uh, nonpartisan group that lobbies the legislature uh, with its goal of building grassroots campaigns for a variety of good government reforms and things of, that uh, uh, serve people of both parties. And uh, uh, as, as I said, it's an interesting organization. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the organization a little bit later on. But Bob, first of all, uh, welcome back to the program. And we are getting ready to get into the, the real meat of the campaigns uh, because North Carolina's primary is coming earlier than ever. That's right, Don. It's always great to be with you and up and you know talk a little bit about what's happening in North Carolina. And indeed, the uh, the big election year is uh, upon us, and filing started uh, this month and and will end next week. And so we're all getting a chance to see, you know, what candidates are filing for what offices. So I guess for the political junkies, it's an exciting time. Well, uh, and, and of course, North Carolina uh, is going to have a big impact on the national scene this year because our primary does come early enough that it will be impactful, I believe. That's definitely true. Uh, we used to have that May primary that was always ingrained, and this year it's March. And certainly there's a lot of implications about that early primary. But even in the bigger picture, and I know we may talk about it later on, uh, the congressional makeup of North Carolina will dramatically change, which will definitely have some national implications on who controls Congress. So lots of things happening in North Carolina that have national implications. Well, you know, it used to, well, was it was it in Missouri that we used to say where how Missouri goes, so goes the nation? It may shift to North Carolina because being such a purple state, uh, we are in that role where we give a real good indication of what the, the public is thinking about uh, nationally, perhaps. So I think people will be keeping their eyes on North Carolina. Okay, so now we've had redistricting again and again and again and again. Uh, but uh, where do for the 2024 election? Because there are some lawsuits that are filed. Uh, bring us up to date on where those stand, and will that possibly change anything? There are two lawsuits right now, Don. One was on the uh, state Senate uh, with a claim of racial discrimination on a couple of Senate districts in northeastern North Carolina. And a judge recently denied the plaintiff's um, desire to have that trial sped up. Uh, but that is a trial that is pending and possibly could have implications for the 24 elections the plaintiff's or to get a favorable ruling. Then another lawsuit has been recently filed that is uh, claims of about four of the 14 congressional districts. Um, you know, it's anyone's guess about the timing of trial and how all this will play out. Uh, the plaintiffs in both of these um, litigations, and Common Cause North Carolina, by the way, is not a plaintiff in either one, uh, but um, their desire is to have an impact on the 24 election and to have both the congressional map and the legislative Senate map redrawn. 
I think that's a hard hill to climb. I suspect, and again, this is just me making my own personal observation, that um, the maps we have will be the ones that we are voting on in November. But that's where we stand right now. There could be some other litigations on the way, but those are the two principal ones that have been filed. Well, it's no doubt that the Republicans have, are in control and they have uh, done the best they can to uh, their cause. And of course, in all honesty, all the Democrats that I've spoken to have said, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> we did the same thing when we were in power, so we can't, we can't say too much. Uh, this is part of the political process where the party and, and, uh, that uh, controls the General Assembly does have the power of redistricting it. And so that does give that particular party advantages uh, that will impact the future elections. That's very true. And it's always that party out of power that screams loud about how a new process is needed. Interestingly enough, Speaker Tim Moore and President Pro Tem Phil Berger both were advocates of redistricting reform when their party was out of power. Now, all the Democrats who used to not do a whole lot regarding uh, redistricting reform, um, of course, are in favor of it. If we could ever get both sides to agree to a better process, that would be best for all of North Carolina. But um, we're still working on it, and it's still sort of an elusive goal for us, unfortunately. The uh, What are some states that do their redistricting in a, in a way that we may perhaps want to look at and say that would be a really good, fair, and equitable way of doing it? Well, you know, Don, I wish I could say, look to South Carolina or Alabama or Tennessee, you know, the states that were that are sort of near us and we might have a little bit of an affinity or a kinship to. But I have to be honest, it's actually California and then Michigan. And both those states pass reform through citizens initiatives, which we do not have here in North Carolina. But Don, basically what they do is they simply have a independent citizens commission made up of uh, unaffiliated independent voters, Republicans and Democrats who work together, <laughs> take the data, and then they draw the maps rather than lawmakers drawing their own districts. Those two states do it the best. Well, and of course, we have three levels of redistricting. We have the congressional maps, we have the state Senate maps, and then we have the House maps. And they uh, and of course, as the population changes and the metropolitan areas become more populous, it becomes uh, more and more difficult for the General Assembly to equitably uh, distribute it because uh, uh, that's one thing that nobody can control, and that's where people want to live. That's true. And we do seem to be self-sorting, as the words are, ourselves to either people who want to live in the urban areas or people mm -hmm. who live in rural areas. And they do seem to be dividing themselves in a partisan way where the uh, urban areas are blue and the more rural areas are red. But to your point, the state is rapidly growing and it's those urban districts that seem to be gaining the most population. And you have to then create more districts in smaller geographic areas. And, um, you know, the goal is to keep communities of interest whole as much as possible. And we do have a whole county rule. So there are certain guidelines that lawmakers have to follow, but you you still have, and Democrats, as you pointed out, Don, did it, and Republicans are doing it, you still have a lot of wiggle room to, um, I'll just use the word, game the system for the partisans who are in control to their advantage. And again, that's what we see over and over, unfortunately. 
And House members, of course, uh, want to preserve their district because they, in many cases, are up for re-election. And uh, the same is true in the North Carolina Senate. Those senators don't necessarily want to draw a new district that is not advantageous uh, to them. Uh, that's that's You can expect that. I mean, that's just human nature. It is. And it is a shame that we'll see dozens of legislative seats go uncontested in this upcoming election because of that. In some places, you're just not going to be able to draw a district that is com- competitive. But in other areas, um, it's done willfully, uh, preordained, if you will. And when we don't have competition, I know you and I have talked about this a lot, it does harm the overall uh, democracy. And even from the media standpoint, if there is a district that has no competition, it's what do you do? How do you cover it? How are the issues really raised? Uh, what does the candidate do in terms of you know promoting the issues that they want to talk about? So we do like to see comp- you know more comp- more competition, obviously, and you only get that when you have a better process about how the lines are drawn. Well, we did, uh, of course, by the population growth in North Carolina, pick up another congressional seat, and that uh, actually eased the burden of, uh, in many cases, of trying to uh, take it or, or, or adapt to the growing population in the metropolitan areas. That actually helped somewhat. That's that's right, um, and uh, that is, as you say, because of our growth, we gained. We seem to be every decade gaining one congressional seat, but the rule number one, of course, is every congressional district must have the exact same population. So in the far west, Murphy, you have to take maybe 10, 12 counties to get one congressional district, whereas here in Wake County, uh, the county is so big, we have at least, you know, enough population to fill one and a half congressional districts. The um, the district that was created uh, obviously was uh, worked around the Gastonia Charlotte area. Uh, do you think that's where that district belonged? Well, they could always that you know the great question um, in terms of the rule of keeping the population equal. It had to go somewhere. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, how, again, those districts are drawn. I don't think, I'll just use this as an example, uh, the triad district in the new maps has now been uh, eliminated. And so you have a district that includes downtown Greensboro and goes all the way to Blowing Rock, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains. That does not make a lot of sense. But when you draw a district like that, you know, you can say, okay, this district that we have new is now west of Charlotte. Um, it had to go somewhere, and certainly that area, you know, has enough population to have a congressional district. But how the lines have been drawn uh, that make two to three congressional districts in the triad, where you could just have one, uh, is the big question I have in terms of, you know, that does not make sense. It was done for partisan reasons, and uh, you know, I think it robs the triad at least of having, you know, that singular congressional representative that they should that they deserve that they should have and of course we had an incumbent announce uh, i think this week that uh, she was not going to seek re-election and it was because she had been uh, uh, the victim of the uh, redistricting that's exactly right and that's that district again that no longer includes the triad 
but just takes a little bit of the downtown Greensboro and then heads um, all the way west past Blowing Rock and takes all the border counties as well. Um, kind of hard to, again, justify that. Well, it also makes it very difficult for that congressman uh, in that particular case, I guess it's a congresswoman, Virginia Fox, to campaign because she's got a huge amount of territory that she has to cover. A lot of geography. You're right. And uh, that's the way it is. I mean, I do understand far west counties that are sparsely populated, but still there's better ways to um, draw the districts that are a little bit more compact. And that's obviously the goal. Well, it's uh, as I said, it, 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 there is there are political implications, obviously, and then also we have growth factors that make, uh, in some cases, that that task a little even uh, more difficult, even for those who are trying to draw it advantageously. Our guest is Bob Phillips. He is the executive director of Common Cause North Carolina, and we'll be back uh, with Bob and talk a little bit more about uh, the upcoming primary and uh, the uh, role of. Uh, common calls in helping and advocating for their positions on uh, issues that affect us all. And we'll do that right after these messages. Steven. Who said that? Me. Down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on uh, Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Bob Phillips. We've said several times that Bob, of course, before he lost his good judgment, was a member of the press and actually worked at WPTF. And uh, then somewhere along the way, he lost his way and became involved in politics and served uh, uh, as uh, an aide, a press secretary to former Lieutenant Governor Dennis Wicker, and then uh, later on is joined uh, Common Cause. Bob, how did you, uh, how, why did you lose your way? You were a good journalist. You, you, belong in the, you belong in the media. Well, you know, Don, I do miss those days uh, when we were in the same building working uh, together. Broadcasting is such a fun business and um, kind of hard for me to even think about those transitions, but it is kind of funny. Reporter, uh political i know some people would say hack i was a communications director press secretary and now lobbyist i guess all three of those professions and of course i will say they're all honorable but 
they do have that perception of sometimes in people's minds of, you know, not being the best, but um, they all connect. I guess that's part of probably the progression, you know, doing work at WPTF, covering the legislature, then kind of falling into uh, the work in state government. And then actually, Don, when I was in state government, seeing sort of how campaigns work and the confluence of money and how, and that's still a problem, unfortunately, in our democracy, just how candidates are having to constantly raise money. So I got interested in reforms, campaign finance reform and voting rights and such. And so uh, the next natural progression was, you know, where I am now with Common Cause. Let's talk about the public now that we're in this era where the daily newspaper is, of course, not disappeared, but is uh, really not a factor as it was for many, many years in dispersing not only news, but also political commentary and editorial opinion. Uh, the daily newspaper uh, is is just not what it used to be and doesn't have the circulation or the influence that it once had. So uh, as a member of the press, uh, put yourself back in that role and say, okay, where do people get their information these days? Uh, what is the source that allows them to know uh, about the candidates they're voting for other than the 30-second ads, and most of which are negative? You know, it's a great question. And one thing I'll say anecdotally is that the legislative building, there is a press room that has been there for decades. And when I was working for WPTF, you could walk into that room and it was a newsroom. There were two dozen reporters and many of them were from the local newspapers all in that room. All of those folks had their eyes on the process of the legislature. Today, Don, that room is much smaller. And at most, you might find three reporters there, a reporter for AP, a reporter for um, public radio, and then sometimes WRAL. Uh, the News and Observer, so maybe about four reporters. And in terms of where people get their information, the traditional outlets still have some coverage. The Associated Press, I know you all, radio and TV will cover, but not near as much. And with the newspapers, just not having the reporters at the legislature, um, there are other, I guess, entities that are trying to fill in the gaps, but they're not the traditional media, and they may have kind of a uh, a bent or an agenda behind, you know, their their presence, if you will. So it's a real concern um, that you know objective uh, coverage of the legislature and about everything else is just not at all what it once was, and uh, people are not as informed, and that has a lot of serious consequences on our democracy and our our, our society. Well, on the national level, of course, people do have the uh, the uh, various cable channels, uh, and as you said, they most for the most part they have a uh, a, a uh, I guess an agenda uh, that is designed toward getting viewership, and so they they take positions that are either conservative or liberal, depending on which one you have. But the other thing that bothers me about them is their over coverage. When they get on a story, they over cover it. And that means that they're not covering hundreds of other stories at all. I mean, you know, for example, uh, the Mideast crisis has just about eliminated any coverage we get on the Ukraine. Very true. It's it's almost like the flavor of the hour, if you will. Uh, whatever story that they can hype and sell, that becomes the dominant coverage 
covered story. And, and you're right. It seems to push out the other things that were, you know, once important. Uh, and I do regret that. And I, I, I do, you know, once upon a time I was in local TV news as we've talked about, and it's amazing how you watch the national news, which I still do, you know, maybe I'm a dinosaur, but I still tune in and they start every newscast with breaking news, which even that's not always the case. We, it's just a different way of packaging and presenting information. And, uh, I just feel like it's not as good and serves the public as well as it once, as we once had a media news media, you know, a generation ago. Well, local TV stations, of course, uh, have extended the number of hours of news coverage, but basically what they have found uh, in their uh, desire to have ratings is that people want the same news over and over. And, and, and in other words, the extra hours does not mean extended coverage. It means uh, basically repeating the same news. People want about maybe 30 minutes a day, and that's about what they want. And so Consequently, even though they may start as early as 4 a.m. in the morning, the 4.30 a.m. and the 5 and the 5.30 newscast are usually pretty similar. Uh, so a lot of stories just go uncovered, and especially on the state level. Uh, unfortunately, you're right, and God bless those reporters that are still in the trenches, if you will, doing the work. I think they do the best they can, and I know at the legislature – even though you don't want group or pack journalism, as it was once called, but you do have those reporters that sometimes sort of cover for each other because you've got lots of committee meetings in the legislative building going on at the same time. And you, when you have just a handful of reporters, they cannot cover it all. And we're just talking about the legislature, but I know you're talking about even the broader, just everything happening in this vibrant area where we live. And so many of those stories indeed don't get covered. And then, then you get down to the local level where you get the county commissioners and the uh, city councils and their coverage is even less than it's ever been before. Um, so, I mean, this, this is, uh, and of course, you know, radio news uh, has always been short form news. Uh, it's never uh, public radio being an exception to that. And they do a, a very credible job of expanding their coverage. But if you take public radio out, uh, say WB, WPTF basically does six minutes, seven minutes of news. Uh, and so the stories are short. One of the advantages of short stories is it is very hard to show any bias in a three sentence or four sentence uh, news story. So I think uh, radio news coverage probably is a little bit fairer than a lot because opinion is just very difficult to get in when you have only three or four sentences. Well, you know, uh, I, I, Certainly think you make a, a fair point there. And I think about when we all kind of gathered around at the same time to watch the same newscasts a generation ago, and we were sort of collectively experiencing that at the same time and could react to it at that same time. Whereas today, so many choices, not again, the kind of traditional, I'll use those words, mainstream media that we were accustomed to, but People may not understand where or not know what where to get their news. And again, it's sort of a cliche, but they go to the places that they trust. They think might be validating their own views and they don't get the full picture. And um, again, I think we see that in this discourse uh, or lack thereof of civil discourse in our society where people's views are hardened in, in large ways by where they're getting their information. 
Now, we've just had another presidential debate on the Republican side. Uh, so far, there's not any reason to have any debates on the Democratic side. That may come. Uh, what, uh, I'm sure you watched them. Uh, what was your opinion, uh, and did anyone learn anything? <laughs> well, I will say, Don, I have to confess, I was uh, actually at an event the night of the last debate and didn't really watch it. But from what I've read uh, of news accounts, no one really <laughs> no one really rose above the others. And I don't know that much was accomplished, particularly when you have the front runner who is not even participating in the debates as well. It's almost what is the point? Uh, obviously, there's still a lot of unknowns about what happens between now and the Iowa caucus and when all the primary schedules or elections begin. But, you know, I'm amazed it's sort of a, you know, a generation ago and you and I would remember um, an Ed Muskie and that's going way back. I, I know Jason might be looking online now who is Ed Muskie, but remember he was a presidential candidate in 72, I think. And because he kind of lost his temper before the media and didn't adequately apologize, he had to drop out. It, you know, just today, it's like candidates can do almost anything, and there's no consequence. Um, I just regret that the um, holding candidates accountable, which again is sort of a mission of common cause, it almost doesn't seem to matter in terms of um, a candidate can get away and say and do just about whatever and uh, not pay a price. I mean, just again, the former president and um, the uh, charges against him, and and yet he is overwhelmingly uh, likely to be the nominee of the Republican Party and certainly has a fair chance of winning back the, the White House. Uh, it's just sort of surprising um, the way it is today again versus how it once was. You know, I guess we go all the way back to the Kennedy-Nixon debates uh, as being the the debate that uh, captured the imagination of the nation and probably changed the course of that election without doubt, because uh, obviously Kennedy's advisors had him wear a little makeup and Nixon had a, a five o'clock shadow and, and uh, lighting was uh, a little different. Of course, it was black and white television. Uh, and uh, But that had a huge impact and a huge watt, uh, viewership. Uh, I, I, I haven't seen the numbers on the most recent Republican uh, uh, debates as far as how many people watch them, but I suspect it's a very small number. Yeah. And, you know, um, the Kennedy-Nixon debate was kind of the standard and people paid attention to it and were, you know, I guess just enraptured by the whole debate. Whereas today, uh, you know, it's the candidates come in and they've got their zingers, their lines, their one-liners, if you will. And it seems like the um, the goal is not so much, you know, win the debate and and present yourself in the best possible manner, uh, but to kind of have that soundbite, as they call it, that one line that sort of rises above um, everything else. And uh, it, again, it's a shame. It just kind of boils it down into, you know, what candidate had the best line and, and you know, who scored the most points against, you know, whatever candidate rather than the whole looking at the debate holistically and, and you know, seeing what the, uh, you know, where candidates are on all those issues. Um it's just not, uh, again, I, I long for the old days in a lot of ways, how it, how it used to be. Well, we had some great debates between Senator uh, Helms and uh, Governor Hunt, too. And uh, those were 
uh, epic in their nature as well. Well, our guest is Bob Phillips. He's the executive director of Common Cause North Carolina. When we come back in the next segment, I want to talk about money and politics. Uh, you alluded to it a little earlier, how much time the candidates are spending raising money. And uh, so that will be our topic when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. And that will begin right after we take time out for these messages. They are our cuddlers and co-workers, per-machines and love bugs, and constant companions. They are our pets, our family, and they make life so much better. When we face unexpected challenges in life, so do our pets. That's why we're on a mission to support people who love their pets and the pets who love their people, ensuring these families stay exactly where they belong, together. And you have something to offer. With an open heart and mind, there is nothing you can't do. There's no gesture too small or too big when it comes to helping. Whether donating a bag of kibble, sharing an Instagram post of a lost cat, or welcoming a foster pet into your home, every bit of kindness counts. You can help keep pets and people together. Visit petsandpeopletogether.org to learn how to be a helper in your community. This has been a public service announcement brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Bob Phillips, Executive Director of Common Calls North Carolina. Bob, I think this would be a good time before we talk about money and politics and the super PACs and so forth for you to tell us a little bit about Common Cause, its origins, and what its purpose is. We alluded to it a little earlier in the beginning of the program, but uh, perhaps you can give us a more in-depth look at the purpose of Common Cause and what you are all about. Sure, Don. I always appreciate that question. Common Cause North Carolina is actually, we've been celebrating our 50th anniversary, founded in 1973. The National Common Cause Organization was founded in 1970. And it's always been about one thing, and that's bringing people together to work for the common good, and that is a better democracy. And of course, it would be, you know, who wouldn't want a better democracy? Our our mission, if you will, is advocating for more open, honest, and accountable government. We're nonpartisan. We work with Republicans and Democrats alike, and we've worked here in North Carolina with both parties to promote better lobbying and ethics laws, which we have in North Carolina. And that was a nice example of getting Democrats and Republicans to work together. We support voting rights. We want to see voting uh, to be made easier rather than harder. We support fair maps. We want the lines to be drawn fairly rather than rigged for one party. And Don, we stood with Republicans pre-2010 calling out the Democrats to um, support a better reform process. And of course, We continue to do that today, even though the Republicans are now in charge. But anybody, Republican, Democratic or unaffiliated, you know, voter alike, we try to work together to promote, again, reforms that we think will promote a healthier democracy. 
Where does your funding come from, uh, Bob? It's a combination of individual donors. Obviously, we have uh, thousands of supporters across North Carolina, actually in every county. And then we also have foundation. There are great foundations uh, across North Carolina, and some of them also are um, supportive of uh, pro-democracy initiatives. And so it's a combination of donors and foundations, but we are totally doing it on our own. A lot of people sometimes think, oh, well, you get funding from the national common cause, don't you? And we get support, obviously, but we're responsible for raising our own budget here in North Carolina. And uh, they come from those two sources. Let's uh, switch to what we said we were going to talk about in this segment. That is money and politics. And money has always been a factor in politics and been a lot of campaign reform through the years. Uh, there's always been money in politics. And in many cases, we probably are doing a better job of controlling that than ever before. But then we have these super PACs that are raising an awful lot of money and uh, supposedly not coordinating with candidates and running their ads, but obviously there's got to be some coordination there. Um, so what worries you most about the the issue of money and politics at this particular time? Well, you know, Don, when you talked about earlier the media and how we have a lack of reporters and where do people get their information, and these super PACs that have no limits on how much money they can spend either for a candidate or for the purposes of defeating a candidate, uh, what they can do and the kind of negative ads and negative information and in today's world of social media, all the things that they can put their money in that is in their own way trying to influence people's opinions, that's what keeps me up and that's the real danger. Super PACs are unregulated money. We don't know where the money comes from. Uh, you're right. There's supposed to be uh, supposed to be a bright line about no coordination between the super PAC and the candidate. But we know that, you know, that's not the case. Even looking at one of the presidential candidates right now on the Republican side, one of the big super PACs that this person had now has suddenly been replaced by another super PAC. And I was it was reported that um, the candidate was and they can do this legally. There's no coordination, supposedly. But they can go out and solicit money for the super PACs. And that's what this candidate was doing, this this new PAC. So there's far too much money in politics. Yes, it takes money to run campaigns, but there's way too much money. And first and foremost, we need to know where the money comes from. And with super PACs, we don't. When do you think there will be legislation or will there ever be legislation that uh begins to attack that that uh, gap, that uh, loophole, so to speak. You know, it's a little like gerrymandering, and it's always, I know politicians, unfortunately, it's human nature, uh, as you mentioned earlier, about why politicians draw lines that benefit themselves. It's the same thing about money and politics. We have tried to work with both sides and said, let's bilaterally disarm here. Let's all come together and get some more sunshine on where the money is coming from and some limits. And sometimes you, you you get some interest in that from one side or the other, but it's always elusive to get them to agree at the same time to do it because 
everything's about winning. And if one party thinks, you know what, we do understand it's a problem, but we are also benefiting from the super PAC. So I don't think we're going to do anything. That's sort of the challenge that we're in. So to answer your question, there are advocacy groups like Common Cause that are pushing for reforms and pushing for more regulations and better transparency. But it's up again to the North Carolina General Assembly and Congress to once and for all decide, yep, we're ready to do it. And so far, they haven't proven that they are. Bob, one of the concerns I have is uh, the only way that the uh, Council of State positions in North Carolina uh, get their message out is through political ads. And they are not, uh, they're sort of way down the line in most people's contributions. Uh, most of, So much of the money goes to either the presidential candidates or the congressional races or the Senate races. There's not a lot left over, especially for some of the Council of State positions. What's the solution there? Because that, in many cases, is the only way people find out anything about those candidates. Well, you know, there are some, and I'm not saying Common Cause has really taken a position, but some people, Don, will say, we elect too many of these offices, go to and look at other states and many of these uh the state superintendent or the agricultural commission or whatever are appointed by the governor that wins even the office that i used to work with the lieutenant governor uh some states they run as a team and there's been arguments made why do you have the lieutenant governor running separately from the governor and you have like what we have right now in north carolina where you have the governor of one party and the lieutenant governor of another and those two, part of the executive branch, are hopefully supposed to be working more with each other. But when they're of opposite parties, that just doesn't happen. So in terms of how they get their message across, I don't really know with, you're right, the um, top of the tickets, presidential, governor, attorney general, when you have a U.S. Senate race involved, those are always going to be the premium races. And then how does a labor commissioner or a treasurer or a state superintendent candidate get their message out? Very, very hard and and very, you know, it, it's limited. I'll just give you one other quick example. Sorry to keep going. But in the upcoming election, we have one of the state Supreme Court justices races that is um, going to be open and uh, very important race has an impact for every North Carolinian. And I bet most people don't know about it. And it's going to be hard for those candidates running for that seat to get their message out. Yes, we've, we we talk about all the races. We overlook the judicial races, and and uh, they, of course, are a very vital part of the, especially state government. They they are, and sort of the same thing. It's always when I use that word elusive, but not every state has uh, elections for their supreme court. Uh, there is uh, certainly a good case to be made that you should have some kind of appointment uh maybe process for our judges versus uh, a pure election or a retention election is another uh way where somebody wins and then they're only uh, eliminated if there's a a call for a retention election there are other ways that states do this where they appoint some of these council of state offices and or the judges and, you know, love elections, and I think it's always good for the people to have a choice. But at the same time, I think North Carolina has done maybe the second or third longest ballot in the nation 
in the presidential cycle because of all these offices that we elect. Bob, does it worry you that uh, people are finding it because of the effects of the internet and how how many rumors can be created that people are shying away from running and seeking political office because they know uh, they are exposing themselves to uh, all sorts of bad <laughs> press, I guess you would say, uh, some of which might be true, most of which might be untrue. Absolutely, Don. I mean, I admire anyone who's willing to, you know, serve and, and run. But in this climate we're in, I do worry about the quality of candidates that we have uh, for all offices and for and on both sides. I'm not saying that the people who are in office are not qualified, but are we getting the very best people possible who are running? And I would say not always. And I think that everything you've just listed is a reason why uh, the money that it takes, the scrutiny that you're constantly under, the fact that there are people trolling, as that word is, on the Internet, just trying to disrupt a person's life or, you know, harass, if you will. Who wants to go through that? Very few people. And I think that, uh, you know, what you see is fewer people, fewer of the best people, if you will, run for office. And in some ways, when we mentioned earlier how a lot of legislative races go uncontested, I think that factors in it as well. Well, you're also taking out about one third of the potential candidates because they have chosen to register as unaffiliates because uh, they obviously have a much more difficult role. If they decide to run, they probably have to declare either being a Democrat or Republican. And of course, what happens is those party candidates come back and say, wait a minute, you're not a true Democrat or you're not a true Republican. So you're taking out a huge number of very qualified people who just are just not eligible, especially for statewide races. They might be uh, candidates for local races, but they, they are sort of out of the picture. Make a great point, Don. And indeed, unaffiliated voters are now number one in North Carolina. More people are unaffiliated uh, today in North Carolina than the number of registered Republicans and the number of registered Democrats. And Common Cause North Carolina actually has filed a suit to allow the state to have unaffiliated voters appointed to the state board of elections. Our law currently prohibits such, but we feel that the administration of our election laws, which is what the state board of elections does, should include the number one registrant, if you will, of um, voters in North Carolina, and that's unaffiliated. So that's just another example, to your point, where people who are um, unaffiliated, uh, they're, they're shut out. They're shut out of running for office, and they're shut out from being appointed to things like the State Board of Elections. Well, in many cases, appointed to anything. Uh, because, uh, and that's that's politics, and and uh, but it's unfair, and it's taking an awful lot of very qualified people out of the picture. Uh, it worries me a great deal, um, and uh, I guess that's just something we'll have to work with in the future and see. Uh, do other states have as many registered unaffiliates as North Carolina does, or is this just a case of us being that purple state? I think it's a lot of being that purple state. I think some of the more, you know, deep red, deep blue states don't have the unaffiliated numbers. But, um, you know, the truth is, too, unaffiliated, many of them sort of know 
where they want to go, Republican or Democratic. Uh, not all, but there is folk, there are a fair amount of those folks who um, they decide not to register with the party, but they tend to vote one direction or another. Yeah. But to your point, I think it's yeah. a, because we are a very highly competitive purple state. I would think that a large number of people who have registered on affiliates are more closely aligned with one party or the other, and, but uh, but uh, they do have that flexibility when it comes to the primaries. Our guest is Bob Phillips. He's the executive director of Common Cause. We have one final segment. We want to talk about the new rules that are changing in 2024 and the legislation to watch in the upcoming year. We'll do that when we take time out for these messages, and they begin right now. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. It's what we were taught, trained, and told to do. It could be for anything. Helping a friend move. Listening to a fellow veteran for hours, at any hour of the day. Or just simply making time for people. A neighbor, a loved one, or even a stranger. We're often the first to help others. There's no question about it. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When is the last time you reached out for help? Perhaps it's time to do for yourself what you would do for others. If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? <gasps> Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Bob Phillips. He's the executive director of Common Calls North Carolina, and uh, uh, has been with us a number of times. We introduced him early in the program as, of course, a former member of our news staff years and years ago, back when uh, he was just a puppy. Uh, but he has been serving as executive director of Common Calls a, a nonpartisan advocacy group uh, that uh, uh, really works in uh, great ways to be sure that our election process is good and that uh, we have more transparency in government and works across party lines and, and seeks good compromises uh, and uh, has been very effective in, in bringing about a lot of stuff. Bob, let's talk a little bit about uh, the laws and rules that are changing for 2024. Um, Obviously, every time the General Assembly meets, they pass some new laws. So what what uh, are the laws that especially affect the areas that you're concerned with? You know, Don, I think the biggest one, there are a few, but I think the biggest one is, is currently in litigation, and that is changing the uh, composition and the way the State Board of Election and the County Board of Elections are appointed. And people may not you know, know really what all that is, but just in the county, every county has a group of citizens that come together and they make the decisions on early voting, for instance, you know, how many early voting sites will say Wake County will use an example, how many sites they will have, where are they located, what hours they operate. Those are very important decisions, particularly 
when increasingly now more people vote early rather than on election day. And Don, what they've done is the legislature, we currently have a um, law, or we did, I should say, it's no longer the law, but where county and state board of elections were a majority uh, with the party of the governor. And so at the uh, state board of elections, it was a 4-3 Democratic majority. And at the county, every uh, county across the state would be three Democrats and two Republicans. Now the new law, and it sounds great, you even it out, two Republicans, two Democrats, um at the county and four democrats and four republicans at the state what we've seen nationally though when you have an even partisan commission or board is they deadlock they gridlock and you know again if i haven't lost anyone on this i'll tell you what the big concern is if a county board of elections early voting plan cannot be unanimously approved it goes to the state board elections for resolution if the state board of election deadlocks or four, then suddenly your county's early voting plan defaults to one early voting site, period. So, Don, you had about 800,000 Wake County Democratic, not Democratic, Wake County voters vote early in the last presidential election. Imagine if we have just one early voting site serving 800,000 voters. That's a possibility with this new law that was passed. Um, other laws, we have voter ID now. Uh, that has been controversial, but we are providing as much education as possible about that. And there's some other laws that will impact how uh, partisan observers who have a legal right to be in their precincts, how they conduct themselves as they are observing the election. Uh, but those are three areas where the legislature did uh, change laws, uh, not all of them good in our minds. And as I mentioned, uh, that one about the Board of Elections is being litigated right now. What about legislation that uh, might come up during the upcoming year? Well, you know, the upcoming year, the so-called short session, and they'll go in sometime in May. And it's, you know, was once upon a time um, just to adjust the budget uh, as they make out a two-year budget plan. Um, the traditional rule of thumb, Don, as you know, has always been, eh, we don't want to take up anything controversial in an election year. Uh, but what I think they will be doing is potentially reacting to some of this litigation that we've mentioned. Uh, as you mentioned at the very top of um, our, our conversation here, there is uh, litigation against the maps, and there are there is litigation against some of these new voting laws if there are court decisions that compel the legislature to have to go back and, and draw new maps or have to go back and change the uh, election laws, bad election laws in our view, but change those laws, then that would be principally what this upcoming, as they call it, short legislative session, uh, that, that's where they would do it. Otherwise, they do, Don, have, again, as you know, um, a uh, a right, if you will, to take up any legislation that last year passed at least in one chamber. So there probably will be some things that they just did not get to pass, say the state Senate didn't pass the House or vice versa. Uh, and that ranges, you know, everything. So we'll see some of that as well. Well, through the years, we have made it easier to vote. I mean, more and more people are 
choosing either absentee ballots or, or mail-in ballots, whichever, or, or both. And then also the uh, early voting. Uh, that Both of those have been very effective, I think, in, in keeping the vote count up. Uh, any changes there uh, that uh, would either uh, affect what we now have or could enhance it? Well, the mail-in voting has become more popular since the pandemic. People saw how easy it was. The biggest change there, Don, was we had sort of adjusting the, for the fact that the U.S. mail doesn't always get ballots or mails, letters, whatever, to the place at the uh, postmarked date. You can have a letter that's postmarked and still it's not arriving at that date. And so we've had in North Carolina what we called a three-day grace period. And that is somebody mails in their ballot at the proper time before the election date, but yet it doesn't arrive to the precinct, uh, to the county board of elections, I should say, until sometimes as much as three days after the fact. In 2009, we passed a law that provided a three-day grace period. It was supported by Tim Moore and Phil Berger. In fact, it was supported by every Republican in every legislature in both chambers, every Republican and every Democrat in both chambers. And they repealed it last year based on, unfortunately, what I think is, again, the kind of big lie that somehow we had some problems and it's, you know, creating uh, lack of confidence. That three-day grace period was important. You had about 14,000 properly registered voters who did everything right, but the U.S. mail let them down and didn't get their ballot on time. Those ballots counted because we had the three-day grace period in 2020. We will no longer have it in 2024. And you're going to see potentially people who are properly registered become disenfranchised because of it. And that's, to me, one of the most egregious laws that was passed this past session. Same-day voter registration uh, has become popular. Uh, any changes there? They tightened up a little bit about the verification. When you have same-day voter registration, obviously you're giving people an opportunity to register and vote simultaneously all the way up into the Saturday before the election. Uh, there were some tweaks to it. Uh, we tried to work with both Republicans and Democrats to come to an agreement where we could all live with it. So I think by and large, most people will still be able to utilize same-day voter registration without too much uh, concern. There will be um, an additional ID requirement that the voter will have to show when they are utilizing same-day voter registration. Uh, that could be a hardship for some, but it was the um, the best agreement we could uh, you know, kind of come up with with the majority party. So we still have same day. Indeed, Don, Republicans are actually using it more than Democrats, for that matter, if anyone's interested. But it's utilized by uh, voters in both parties. Formal accusations of voter fraud uh, don't seem to get much press. Uh, are there many uh, accusations of voter fraud in North Carolina? Well, I don't know that there's a lot of accusations. There's a perception, of course, for, from some people who do not accept the, the last presidential election, you know, of, of folks of that ilk who kind of promote that. But, Don, that's a great question and very timely because the State Board of Elections and all the County Board of Elections just recently certified the November election. And what that means is they did what they call the canvas all the ballots, all the machines, all the things are, you know, looked over. You have audits and nothing 
was amiss. There is no systemic fraud that is occurring in North Carolina. Are there some cases where somebody has, you know, voted uh, when they shouldn't have? Maybe they weren't properly registered. Um, that certainly has happened. I don't think it didn't see anything in the last local elections as they have certified the races. But we have a good elections process and we have not seen any evidence of widespread fraud in our state, period. So I think it's um, it's a bogus issue that some people are promoting, and it's a shame they are doing such. Bob, we've got about uh, two and a half minutes for you to give us a, a look at what you as uh, Executive Director of Common Cause North Carolina will be working on in the immediate future and also during the year 2024. Uh, short-term problems or opportunities that you are looking at and also for the entire year. So take off and give us a little summary of what you're going to be working on uh, and being concerned about. Thank you uh, for that uh, opportunity, Don, and I'll promise to get off my soapbox at uh, the right time. But I think primarily with 2024, obviously, the number one issue we need to work on is uh, you know, voter education. And I say that in a nonpartisan frame, and that is we want people to to cast a ballot and we want them to vote. Democracy works best when we have robust participation, and that's for everybody. So first and foremost, we need to educate voters about the new rules that you and I have talked about, making sure they understand some of the rules that have been changed that could impact them, making sure that they understand, you know, just the basics of what elections when to vote, when to register, when are those deadlines? And also, again, in a nonpartisan frame, what offices are uh, up for election? As you mentioned, Don, the long ballot we have so that people understand why should I even vote for the labor commissioner or what is the state superintendent's office? How does it impact my life or this state Supreme Court justice election? Why is that important? We will be doing education uh, from now until November, uh, particularly trying to get the demographic that votes the least, and that's that 18 to 29 young people. Uh, get them registered, but they often don't show up at the polls. We are trying to get people registered, and we're trying to get people to show up and vote. And again, that's both sides. Um, the other things we'll work on, obviously, and we'll continue is Anything and everything we can do to defend voting rights, we always do that. And we'll continue to uh, ring the bell, sound the alarm for fair maps. We will always have a problem with our democracy as long as we let the party in power draw their own districts. We must someday pass comprehensive, meaningful redistricting reform. So, Don, I think my soapbox here is getting a little bit wobbly. <laughs> Well, that's, you've left me with just enough time to thank you for being with us again. Uh, again, if uh, people are uh, interested in sharing this broadcast with friends, they can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and share the broadcast. Or if you missed a section or two of the broadcast, you can also hear it at carolinanewsmakers.com. Jason Kong, as usual, has produced our program, and he promises me faithfully that he will have another interesting guest for us again next week on this same group of stations all across North Carolina. So on behalf of Jason and our entire team here at Curtis Media Group, we hope that you and yours have a wonderful week. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.